Well, good morning, New Life. As always, it's good to be with you this morning. If you are new or visiting, uh, my name is Chris. So glad that you're joining us uh, this Mother's Day. I um, want to wish uh, a special happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. I know many of you um, are, are biological moms, you're adoptive moms, you're even spiritual moms. And uh, listen, I, I love the, the guys in our church. I love the dudes in our church, but I'm just telling you, uh, so often it's, it's the ladies, it's the mothers who serve as, as the glue of our, of our faith family. And uh, I know many of, of you moms out there are, are single moms. Uh, I know some of you uh, have husbands, but maybe your, your husbands aren't believers. And so you're, you're kind of spiritual single mothers in the sense that, uh, man, you're, you're the ones getting the kids up on Sunday morning, getting them ready to, to bring them to church. You're the one discipling your kids at home, sharing about Jesus at home. And so I just want to say um, from the bottom of my heart, you guys are some of, of my heroes. You guys are giants of the faith. Um, we are so indebted to our moms and just say, wanted to say we hope you have an awesome day today. We love you. We appreciate you. We're, we are better because of you. Um, and just keep, keep being awesome, moms. Uh, we love you guys. Also, hey, dads, if you're, if you're tuned in, I, I know a lot of things are closed down today. Uh, that is no excuse. Uh, do, do something special for uh, the mamas in, in your life, your mama, maybe uh, your baby mama. You know, do, do something special uh, for them. Uh, cook them a meal, go buy ingredients. Uh, grocery stores are still open. Cook them up something tonight. Maybe give them a back rub. Uh, foot massage, whatever they want, uh, they should be getting uh, today. So you guys treat, treat the mamas in your lives. All right, let's dive right in uh, this morning. If you have a Bible at home, please go ahead and grab that. Head for 1 Peter chapter 1. We are now in our, our third week in our new series called Hope in Exile. And Peter, uh, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, he is, he's writing this letter to a group of five churches that are located in uh, modern-day Turkey. So this was, at this point in time, 2,000 years ago, this was a part of that vast Roman Empire, and he's writing to these churches who, uh, at this time, were under exile. They were in exile. They were suffering persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And uh, last week, if you missed last week, Peter really just kind of unfolded this beautiful picture for his audience of their amazing inheritance in Jesus. In fact, Peter calls it a, a living hope. It's a type of hope that's anchored in the past, and it's secured for us in the future, but it also can be experienced in the present. And so this week, Peter is going to challenge these suffering believers and you and I to uh, respond to this type of hope in some really bold ways. So the first 12 verses, the first half of chapter 1 in 1 Peter just kind of lays out all of these uh, breathtaking promises and reminders about what God has done. That God has, God has saved them. God has, has chosen them. He's loved them, right? He's giving them this, this living hope and this inheritance that is to come that is kept safely for them in heaven by their heavenly Father. But now he begins to shift gears in verse 13, and he's going to begin to challenge these believers to not just believe the right things about God in their minds, which is important, but he's going to challenge them to begin to actually live out these truths in the furnace of suffering, which is a completely different ballgame, right? It's a whole different challenge. It's one thing to believe the right things about God. It's another thing to begin to actually live them out in the challenges 
in uh, the pain, the seasons of suffering, in exile in this world. And so Peter's now shifting from our salvation, our living hope, our uh, inheritance kept in heaven. He's shifting from all those glorious promises to our response. What, what, what should our lives look like in response to everything that God has done for us, even in times of exile and pain? So we're going to pick up right there. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. And this is what Peter writes. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, right out of the blocks, Peter begins to give these believers some, some commands, some, um, some action steps to take, if you will. He goes, Therefore, now listen, anytime, uh, if, you're, if you're doing kind of your quiet time, you're reading through the Bible, anytime you come across that word, therefore, you should always ask what it is there for. You get it? Get it? No, it's still too early in the morning. All right. So, any, but anytime, anytime you see that word, therefore, you always ask what it's there for because what the author is doing is they're pointing back to something that's really important that they just said. So in this case, Peter is pointing back to everything that he's given us in the first 12 verses. And so Peter's saying, listen, believer who is in exile, believer who is suffering because of everything I've just said, because of the salvation that you have in Christ, because of his resurrection from the dead, because you are loved, because you are chosen, because you are an elect exile, which is the language he uses in chapter one, because you have a living hope and a glorious inheritance, this is now how I want you to respond. This is how I want you to live your life in light of all of those glorious truths. And so what Peter's gonna do is he's gonna give us a list of five action steps to take in our, in our lives, right? So um, if, you are, if you are a list person this morning, if you're one of those sickos, you're, you're in luck, right? You can go ahead and write out your five little blanks and we'll go through and you can just check them all off, all right? Uh, Peter apparently was a list guy. So uh, if I offended you by calling you a sicko, I, I apologize, I didn't really mean it. Even Peter apparently was, was a list guy. So if you're one of those kind of, you just kind of make lists about lists so you can check things off and you get some kind of sick pleasure for that. Peter was apparently like that. So we're gonna have a list of five things, five action steps or five responses to all these glorious truths that Peter has been giving us about the gospel. So here we go. Let's look at verse 13 again. Verse 13, he says, therefore, Preparing your minds for action, all right? So he starts with the mind, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So Peter says, step one, I want you to prepare your mind for action. Now, in the original Greek language, it literally says there, gird up, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that probably means absolutely nothing to the vast majority of you, but Peter's audience 2,000 years ago would have understood precisely what he was saying when he said, I want you to gird up the loins of your mind. See, in, in Peter's day, men, men wore tunics, all right? So they were kind of these long flowing, uh, I don't want to say dresses, but it's kind of like what they are. Uh, a, a lot of people uh, to this day in Africa and the Middle East still, still wear tunics. I mean, they're, they're really practical, they're they're, they're lightweight, they're comfortable, especially if you're living kind of in a, in a hot climate, they're, they're really practical. There's only one problem with wearing a tunic. You know what that is? You, you can't fight in a tunic, 
<laughs> you, you can't run, you can't fight, you don't have a good range of motion, you can't move around. And so uh, when men in these days would go to war or they would get in a fight or they were going to do something physical like plow a garden or something like that, they would, they would do something called girding up their loins, which essentially means they would, they would take their tunic and they would pull that material up, they would roll it up, and they would, they would tuck it into their, their belts. And now they're ready for action, right? They're, they're, ready, they're ready to rumble. They're ready to get in the octagon. They're ready to, to, to go. They're ready for whatever they need to do. Now, a modern equivalent today in our language might be, hey, roll up your sleeves. Roll up your sleeves and get ready to go to work. This is, in essence, what Peter is saying there. He's saying, prepare your minds in this way. Get your minds ready for action. In other words, believers, even in your suffering, it's not good enough to just know the facts about God saving you and God choosing you, about God keeping an inheritance in heaven for you. Like, yes, you need to know those things. Like, we need to bathe our our minds and our hearts in these amazing, life-giving, glorious truths. We need to know them, but that's not enough. We can't stop with just mere knowledge about these glorious truths. We have to take action. And we start by taking action with our mind. I think it's helpful for us here to, to see what the Apostle Paul says about this very same subject in Romans chapter 12. This will be on the screens for you. Paul, Paul writes this, Do not be conformed to this world, but Paul says, be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, now, now for me, this brings to mind, um, many of you guys know I, I spent some of my childhood years growing up in, in Alabama. That's where my whole family's from, mom and dad, grandparents, all that kind of stuff. And in the state of Alabama, if you, you might not know this, but in the state of Alabama, football is, is like a religion. Okay, so, so up here in North Carolina, it's a sport. It's a game. In the state of Alabama, football is not a sport. It's not a game. Football is, is life. And so I, I played football in uh, middle school and high school, and I still have the scene in my mind um, before a big game on Friday night, man, the, the lights were on, the, the stadium's filling up with, with the crowd, and our coach, our football coach, would gather us up We'd be alone. All the guys are getting, getting ready to go out there. Big game. Lots of people. The lights are bright. We're so excited. And our coach would look at us, and he would scream the same thing every Friday night. He'd go, boys, I want you to get your mind right. Get your mind right. And what he was saying to us is, listen, stop thinking about your girlfriend sitting in the stands. Stop, stop thinking about the pizza that you're going to enjoy after the game. I don't want you thinking about the algebra test that you're most likely going to flunk on Monday morning. I don't want you to think about any of that stuff on the margins of your life. Your focus right now, boys, is on one thing and one thing only, and that is on crushing the team that lines up opposite you. Nothing else in this world matters right now. And in a sense, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, Christians suffering right now. Christians in exile, I want you to get your mind right. Prepare your thoughts for action. So remember I said just a minute ago, Peter's going to give us a list of, of five action steps we can take in response to this glorious good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. So here's action step number one. Peter says, believer, get your mind right. Get your mind right. In other words, don't focus on your pain. Don't dwell on those who are persecuting you. 
Don't focus on everything that you've lost in this season of life when a, when a virus sweeps across the globe. Man, don't, don't dwell on those things. Instead, Peter says, I want you to focus on the living hope that you have in Jesus. In other words, he's saying, get your mind right. Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by that. And then in verse 13, he says this, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, and now he's about to give us kind of the second thing there. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is saying, listen, okay, after, after you get your, your mind right, after you get your mind off of yourself and your pain and everything that you've lost and you have all of that focused on Jesus, once you get your mind right, after you gird up the loins of your mind, this is what I want you to do. I want you to set your hope fully on the grace that you find in Jesus. And so command number two, in light of our glorious salvation, our eternal inheritance is this. Number two, Peter commands us to hope fully. Now, isn't it interesting that Peter doesn't just say, hey, believers, I want you to set your hope on Jesus. He inserts that word fully. He says, I want, you to ho- I want you to hope fully in the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, why did he do that? Now, now here, here's why I think Peter inserted that word fully there. I think it's because Peter knew that we tend to be people with divided loyalties, don't we? Don't we tend to be people with divided loyalties, man? Even as Christians, we we tend to place part of our hope in Jesus. Sometimes we might even place most of our hope in Jesus. But we we like to keep just just a little bit of our hope over here in our our bank account. We like to keep just a little bit of our hope right over here in our 401k retirement plan. Just a little bit in our job or a particular relationship. Sure, we, we love Jesus. Yeah, we, we, we go to church, man. We, we give financially. We, we read our Bibles on occasion, but we like to hedge our bets. I would imagine most of you, under the sound of my voice right now, if you're tuned into this broadcast, most of you would probably say, yeah, we, we hope, I hope fully in Christ. But the reality is, for most of us, we hope in Christ plus something else plus something else. Now, I don't know what that something else is for you, but Peter is saying, listen, Christian, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. A hope divided is really a false hope in the end. And so Peter says, brothers and sisters, I want you to place all of your hope. I want you to place 100% of your hope in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because your bank account, that may fail you. Your job, that may go away. Your health will fade at some point in time in your life. And so don't play, Peter's saying, don't place even partial hope in any of those things. Rather, I want you to place all of your hope, I want you to hope fully in Jesus and in nothing else. He goes on in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your Former ignorance. This is your, your life before, before beginning your relationship with Jesus. He's saying, don't, don't be conformed to those things that characterize or marked your life before you came to know Jesus. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also 
are to be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, and he quotes Leviticus 11 right here, you shall be holy for I am holy. So here Peter gives us action step number three in response to this glorious inheritance as elect exiles. And this is, in my opinion, this is without a doubt the most difficult of them all. Because Peter says, hey, follower of Jesus, in light of this great salvation, in light of this living hope, don't be conformed to your former passions of ignorance. Instead, I want you to begin to walk a holy life. You are to be holy as God is holy. So that's, that's our third action step. That's our third command in response to what Jesus has done for us. Number three is very simply, be holy. Now, we, we really don't have a category in our modern-day culture for holiness. Do we? I, I mean, th- think about it. When, when is the last time you heard anybody use the word holy outside of a, a church context in a positive light? Almost every time we hear, hear the word holy in our culture, it's in a, it's in a negative light. So, for instance, people will say, uh, yeah, that, that guy is holier than thou. And what do they mean when they say that? That's, that's not a positive thing, is it? They're saying that guy's, a, that guy's an arrogant jerk, right? That, that, guy, that guy's a punk who thinks he's better than everybody else. It's used in the negative light. Or we hear, hear the word holy, usually used in connection with a, a curse word, like holy bleep, right? Or holy expletive, right? We, we have, in our culture, we have lost the meaning. We have totally lost the meaning of the word holy, completely lost it. Even for many of us who grew up in church, when we hear the word holy, at least if you're anything like me, we tend to think of something less than pleasant, right? So if you hear, hey, that guy's a, a holy man, or that guy is a, is a holy person, we tend to think of that person maybe as kind of a rigid person, like may, maybe an unhappy person, somebody who never, never laughs, never has any fun, maybe somebody who frowns all the time, just like reads their Bible 17 hours a day. We kind of think of that as like a holy person, but when the Bible uses the word holy, what that literally means is set apart. That's what the word holy means. It means something that is set apart for a specific purpose. So when scripture writers use the word holy to describe God, what they mean to say is there is no one like him. He is completely set apart. There's, there's nobody on this planet who, who is like him. God has no equal. God has no rival. Nobody loves like God. Nobody is just like God. Nobody forgives like him. Nobody sets free like him. He is all alone. He is set apart in who he is, his character. Set apart from every other person, every other being on this planet. And he's saying, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, even in your suffering, you are his son. You are his daughter. And children are to be like their father in heaven. It's kind of like, for me, our, our Cheryl and I, we got three, three kids, right? And for, for better or worse, my, my kids are like me in, in so many ways. Now, now pray, praise Jesus. They, they look more like, like their mom, and, and I'm grateful for that. But they, they cannot help being like me, right? They can't help but, but being like me. So for me, I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan in general. You guys know, I, specifically, I'm an Alabama football fan. Don't hold it against me. I just kind of grew up in that culture. I love Alabama football. And so uh, that also means I, I hate Auburn and LSU football. Well, get, well get, guess who my kids cheer for in football? 
They, they love Alabama and they hate Auburn and they hate LSU. Why? Because they're like their dad. They're like their dad. When, when Judah was, was little, a couple years ago, I would go out on the weekend and I'd be cutting the grass. I'd be mowing the grass. And uh, inevitably, I would, I would kind of turn around at some point during the time and, and little Judah would be out there right behind me pushing some little cart in the grass. Now, he wasn't helping. He was, if anything, was kind of getting in the way. He wasn't helping anything at all. But why was he out there helping me cut the grass? And he didn't know why. He just knew that he wanted to be like his dad. Well, that's exactly what Peter is saying here. He's saying, look, look, your heavenly father, your, your, your daddy in heaven is holy. That's what, that's, what your dad is, that's what your dad is like. He's, he's set apart, and so I want you to, I want you to be set apart. I want, you to, I want you to love what he loves, and I want you to hate what he hates. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't chase the same stuff that this world chases. Don't value the same things that this world values. You are to be set apart as your heavenly Father is set apart. Now, the words of Jesus really echo through this entire letter uh, from Peter. I mean, it's so obvious that, that Peter spent so much time with Jesus. I mean, his, his teachings are just dripping with the teachings of, of Jesus, which is beautiful. Kind of at this point, I, I think we're, we are to be reminded of the time where Jesus said to his disciples, hey, listen, don't, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth, where, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and still Rather, Jesus said, I want, you to, I want you to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, Jesus was saying, I want you to be different. I don't want you to be like the rest of your, the world. I don't want you to be, be like all of your friends who don't know me, all of your neighbors who don't know me. I want you to live a holy life, a set-apart life, a life given to another kingdom entirely. And notice what Peter says here. He says, I want you to be holy, and I, and I hate that he put this word in here, he says, I want you to be holy in all of your conduct. Now, why did he have to stick that in there? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been enough for Peter just to say, I want, I, want you to be, I want you to be holy in the vast majority of your conduct, in, in, in most of your conduct? He says, but he doesn't say that. He says, I want you to be holy in all of your conduct. Now, listen, we could spend easily a whole entire sermon parked right here because, man, how do you unpack what it looks like practically to live a set-apart holy life. We don't have time to unpack all of that, but just briefly, let me say, living a holy life means that we do crazy things like love our spouse or love our parents or love our kids, even when they don't deserve it. Even when they're not treating us rightly, we choose to love them through those hard times. It looks like choosing the hard things over and over and over again. For those of you who are, who are dating, I know we've got a lot of high school students, college students, young singles. For those of you who are in that, that life stage of, of dating, man, this living a set-apart life, living a holy life means not, not crossing physical boundaries until you're married. Uh, for for men, this, this looks like making the, the right decision with what you look at on your phone or your computer screen when nobody's around, when nobody's watching. Believer, living a holy set-apart life, it, it looks like being generous with the money that God gives you even when you're afraid because a, a virus is messing with the financial stability of our nation. 
It's trusting God enough, even in that moment, to say, I'm going to be generous and I'm going to be obedient to you. It looks like finding ways to serve others instead of focusing just on yourself. Being set apart, being holy, it, it begins to change the very words that come out of our mouths. It changes how we, how we interact with those who hurt us, with those who betray us. Changes how we respond to those who wound us and hurt us. Being set apart literally affects, according to Peter, every single part of who we are. Now listen, this, this is not an overnight process. Wouldn't that be nice? We, we come to Jesus, we, we hear the gospel, we, we accept it, we believe it, right? God gives us the Holy Spirit and like we wake up and the next day we have no sin <laughs> in our life. Like there's no more struggle. What, wouldn't that be awesome? That's not, that's not how it works, right? This is, this is what the Bible calls the process of sanctification, where over time God is making us just one degree more holy today and tomorrow. He's making us slowly more like his son, Jesus. So it's a, it's a process. But, but here's the deal. I ought to be able to look at my life. I ought to be able to look at myself three years ago. I ought to be able to look at myself five years ago. I ought to be able to look at myself 10 years ago and see that God is in the process of changing me. I ought to be able to look at my life and see that there's actual tangible fruit in my life, that there's evidence of life change. So let me, let me just say, man, if there, if there is no pattern, if you look at your life, if you look at the last three years, five years, 10 years, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, if you look at the pattern in your life and you see no life transformation, I would just simply say to you in love, listen, friend, you, you might be religious, but you also may not know Jesus. Because here, here's the deal. Jesus promises all of those who follow him that he will send his Holy Spirit to indwell us, to live inside of us. And listen, that's one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to make us holy. I mean, that's, that's part of his name for Pete's sake, right? The Holy Spirit. That's part of what he does is he makes us holy. Holy, and so if you say that you know Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you follow Jesus, but nothing has changed in the way that you think, that nothing has changed in the way that you live your life, nothing has changed in the way that you love others and forgive others and, and give and sacrifice for others, I would simply say to you, friend, listen, you might want to consider whether or not you have truly crossed that threshold of faith or not. Because Peter is saying the third action step, once you encounter living hope, Jesus Christ, is that we begin to chase holiness in our lives. Now, not, not perfectly, never flawlessly on this side of heaven, but listen, there, there is a difference. There ought to be a marked difference in someone who is set apart by the Holy Spirit of God, someone who is chasing holiness. Because here, here's the deal. When you're following Jesus, when you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, when you, when you sin, that, that Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, here, here's how you know. When you sin, there ought to be a struggle. There ought to be an internal battle, right? You, you begin to follow Jesus and you begin to hate your sin. Like it, it starts to, to make you sick. That's one of the defining marks that changed in my life. I went from not caring at all when I sinned to having no effect on me at all when I began to follow Jesus, when he put his spirit inside of me, when I would sin, it began to chew at me. It began to make me miserable. It would wreck my life. And so I'm just telling you, if, there, if there's no struggle in your sin life, man, if there's no misery when you sin, that, that ought to be a massive, 
a massive spiritual red flag in your life. I heard a pastor put it this, put it this way one time. I thought this was really good. He said, there's, there's no more miserable creature on earth than a Christian stuck in sin. There's no more miserable creature on earth than a Christian stuck in sin. Why? Because sin goes against everything that we were made to be. Sin goes against everything that we were created to be. And listen, I can tell you from personal experience, the most miserable, without question, the most miserable times in my life were seasons when I've been stuck in sin. No, no question. And also, I know from personal experience that the most joy-filled, peaceful, happy seasons in my life are times where I'm walking the path of holiness. See, we, we, we tend to think in, in our culture, in our context, that, that living a holy life will somehow cause us to miss out on something fun or it will somehow rob us of happiness. But the truth is, Peter's saying this is kind of like the Christian paradox. Holiness is actually the pathway to happiness. It's kind of the opposite of what we think. Holiness doesn't rob you of anything. It actually leads you to a place of satisfaction, joy, and happiness in your life. And so Peter is saying, suffering Christian, I want you to be holy like your father is holy. I want you to chase after holiness. Do not be conformed to this world. Be set apart because your heavenly daddy is set apart. He's holy. And little kids want to be like their dad. And so in that way, I want you to chase after your father. He is holy, so I want you to be holy. He continues on in verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now that's undoubtedly a mouthful, but here's what Peter just said. Christians, you are not your own. Follow Jesus you don't belong to yourself, which absolutely flies in the face of our culture of hyper-individualism, right? Our culture, which says, man, do what you want. Do whatever you want. You do you, right? You be true to you. You follow your truth, whatever that means. Follow your heart. Trust your gut. Take care of yourself. And Peter looks at that and he says, no, 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 no. Now, that's not it. Christian, you need to understand something. You were, you were ransomed, <laughs> follower of Jesus, you were actually purchased with a high price, not with silver or gold. No, 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 no. With something far more valuable and costly than silver or gold could ever be. You were actually purchased by God the Father with the precious blood of Jesus. And in light of that fact, you do not belong to yourself. You are not your own. You are not free to do whatever you want. You have been ransomed. And so what I want you to do is I want you to conduct yourself with fear as exiles because your loving heavenly father, listen, your loving heavenly father is also a just judge. Your loving heavenly father is also a just judge. Now, it is not at all in vogue in our modern day churchy American church culture to talk about 
things like God's justice. It's not in vogue or popular to talk about biblical truths like having a right and healthy fear of the Lord. Right? This, this terminology that, that Peter is referencing here, fear of the Lord, this is, this is language that is scattered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament writings alike. But you almost never hear churches nowadays talk about this aspect of, of God's character anymore, of who he is anymore. And yet it seemed really to be very important to those who knew Jesus and, and those who walked with Jesus. I mean, to me, this brings to, words the, the, bring, brings to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. This is Jesus. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Jesus talked a lot about the fear of the Lord. The prophets of old talked about the fear of the Lord. The disciples who lived and walked with Jesus for three years talked about it. So what does this mean, like practically? Does this mean we, we cower in fear and we should just be trembling in terror of, of God? What does it actually mean to have a healthy fear of the Lord? Now, listen. The best way I know how to illustrate this, um, and I, I grew up in a, in a great home, had a great childhood, had lovely, still have lovely parents, and, um, and, and this may be hard for some of y'all to believe, but I was a really naughty kid. And so I, I, got in, I got in trouble, I got in trouble a lot, and uh, more often than not, it was, it was me and my sister at home and my mom, right, because my, my dad was gone. And my, my mom, God love her, bless her heart, she's, um, she's kind of like my wife. She's like five foot nothing, 100 pounds. And after I was about three years old, I, just, I had no fear of her at all. And so I would get in trouble and she would say, Chris, I'm gonna discipline you. You just smacked your sister in the face. I'm gonna discipline you. And I didn't care at all. There, were, there was no fear at all. But sometimes I would do something so bad she, and, and this would strike terror in me. She would look at me and she would say, I'm gonna tell your father. When he gets home, I'm gonna tell your father. And that changed the whole tone and tenor of the whole situation, right? I would go quiet. I'd get depressed. I'd go to my room. I'd start praying. Jesus saved me again. God, I'll be a missionary if you just help my mom forget to tell my dad, right? And I, to me, when I was a little kid, my dad was the biggest, strongest, most powerful person on the planet. And so in those situations, man, out here, the key jiggling in the door, my dad coming in, man, and again, I would just start praying. I would get saved again, and I would tell God, make all these promises. Now, why? I, man, I was in awe of my father. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't, he was never abusive. I wasn't scared of him in an unhealthy sense, but there was a healthy reverence and awe of his strength and his power. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. He's saying, listen, Christian, I want you to live in a sense of awe. I want you to live with a sense of respect and reverence, a healthy fear of the Lord because he is so much bigger and more glorious and more powerful. If you just got a glimpse of who God, you would fall down and die. He's so big and glorious. So Peter's saying, listen, listen, let, let not only his love, let not only God's love, but let his justice inform your conduct. And so action step number four this morning Peter gives us is to fear rightly. Number four, fear rightly. In other words, Peter's saying, don't, don't fear people. Don't, don't fear those who, who can hurt the body but can't touch your soul. Don't, don't fear viruses. Don't, don't fear economic projections of, of doom. No, don't fear any of those things. Walk in a humble, healthy fear of your Father who loves you and ransomed you with the very blood of Jesus. 
And as you walk in this spirit of reverential awe of God, you will begin to naturally live a set-apart and holy life. And Peter continues on. He begins to kind of land the plane a little bit. Verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a, listen to this, for a sincere brotherly love. And here comes the command, the last one. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For, and now he's about to quote Isaiah 40, for all flesh is like grass and all glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter closes out this section of his letter with a final commandment. How are we to respond to a living hope? How are we to respond to the new birth that God has given us through Jesus Christ's command or action step number five? Peter says, is love fiercely. Love fiercely. Now it gives us some, some specifics here. He doesn't just say, hey, hey, love anybody fiercely, love, love anywhere, love any way you want. Peter is specifically saying right here, he's saying, I want you to love your brothers and sisters in the faith, your fellow believers with an agape love. Now this agape love, this is the kind of love that God has loved us with. So here Peter, Peter is saying, listen, the way that God, the way that God loved you the way, the way that God sacrificed for you, the way that God gave everything for you, yeah, that, that's the way you are to love one another, brothers and sisters in the faith. Jesus, Jesus puts it this way in, in John 13. This will be on the screen for you. It says this. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. He's talking to believers here, his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Why, Jesus? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, if, and only if, you have love for one another. Now, if you think about it, that, this, is, this is incredible because I, I, think, I think many of us, myself included, we, we think the, the way to win people into the kingdom of Jesus is, is by loving people outside of the faith. It's by, by loving non-Christians. It's by doing good deeds and serving non-Christians. And listen, all of that is important. We ought to do that. We, we ought to care for our, our neighbors and our coworkers and our, and our friends who are outside the faith. That, that is incredibly important. But both Jesus and Peter say, listen, you want the world to know that I sent you? You want the world to know that you belong to me? Love one another. That's where you start. Love each other in the family of God. Love each other ferociously. You love each other the way that I loved you and gave everything for you. you say, Chris, man, that, that ought to be easy, man. Believers loving other believers, that ought to be easy. Yeah, but you're right, it ought to be, but here's, here's the reality. When you are in exile in life, when you are suffering, when you're in a season of pain, when you're hurting as these Christians were that Peter was writing to and as we are to a lesser degree today, it's, listen, it is really easy to begin to neglect love for each other when most of our time and our energy and our mental space is used thinking about how bad we have it. 
and how much we've lost and how much we, we wish we could have what we had a couple months ago, but we don't have now. Listen, when I'm, when I'm throwing myself a, a pity party, personally, when I'm thinking about all, all that I've lost and all the things that I wanna do and I, and I can't do, guess what I'm not doing in that moment? Guess what, I, guess what I'm not doing? I'm not doing what Peter's saying right here. I'm not loving my brothers and my sisters earnestly, fiercely, the way that Jesus commanded me to. And so Peter is simply saying here, suffering Christians, don't, don't turn on each other when things get hard. Don't turn your backs on each other when things get hard, when you suffer, when you're in pain. Don't, don't neglect one another when you're, when you're suffering. Don't, don't argue with one another about, about when and how to reopen during a pandemic. Don't turn your backs on each other arguing about whether you should wear a mask or not wear a mask or social distance or not social distance. Peter's saying, don't get sidetracked from the main thing. And the main thing is this, a new commandment I give you, love one another just as I have loved you. And Jesus says, and then the world will know. And then the world will know that you're my disciple and that you belong to me. Now let, let me say in closing, man, that one of the most encouraging things for me during the last seven or eight weeks of this quarantine season as a pastor has been watching how you guys love each other well. Now, I, I know you guys don't get a bird's eye view of everything that's going on, but I'm telling you, I am constantly getting notifications via email and social media of meal trains popping up all over the place for people who are sick within our body. I'm talking about drive-through baby showers. I think we got two or three next weekend uh, for the tons of babies that we have coming. Uh, I think we're gonna need some new nursery rooms when we open back up. Uh, you guys are taking the command to um, multiply and fill the earth seriously, which is, which is awesome. Keep, y'all keep on doing that. We love babies here. Uh, just got a, a thing this last week. Our youth group is, is, is making and delivering masks to frontline healthcare workers right here in our city. I'm seeing pictures of boxes of food that are being packaged for the homeless in our city, for the most vulnerable. Man, it, it's, been, it's been incredible to see the ways that you guys have responded, the way that you guys are actually being the church in a time that we can't actually go to church. It's been awesome. And I say all of that just simply to say, keep it up. It's been, it's been absolutely incredible to watch that. And let me also say, man, if you're, if you're not a part of that movement yet, let me just tell you, there, there's room at the table Grab a chair, slide up to the table of grace, and let's love each other with a ferocious love. Even when it's hard, even when we're frustrated that we are in exile and we can't go the places we wanna go and do the things that we wanna do, even when we are in seasons of pain and suffering, let's love each other well because that's how the world is gonna know that we belong to Jesus. So we close this morning. Here, here's what I don't want you to miss. Here's what I don't want you to miss. The first half of chapter one is all about what God has done for us. It's all about how he loved us, he chose us, he gave us a living hope, a, a glorious inheritance, and the second half of the chapter is all about life change. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss the order, right? Salvation comes first, life change comes second, and a lot of times we get those orders mixed up. See, a lot of times we think, man, I've got I've to get my life cleaned up and I've got to get all this junk out of my life and then I can come to God. Or I've got to get all this crud and all this sin out of my life and then God will love me. No, friend, we, we got it backwards. It is because God loved us first in our sin. It is because God 
chose us before we were born in spite of our sin and our brokenness. It is because God caused us to be born again into a living hope that we now have the power to live out this set apart, this holy life marked by love and awe and fear of the Lord and holiness with our hope set fully on Jesus. So here, here's the deal. If you're, if you're hearing this and you're thinking in your mind, okay, Chris, I, I hear you. I, gotta, I need to do all these different things in my life. And so I'm just gonna willpower my way through it. Starting tomorrow morning, I'm gonna willpower my way through this, man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop cussing so much. I'm gonna stop sleeping with my boyfriend. I'm, and I'm gonna stop looking at porn. I'm gonna stop drinking too much. I'm gonna stop eating too much. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna willpower my way through this because I want to be obedient to this. Listen, spoiler alert, you, you, you can't. You can't. You, you will fail. The only way that you can begin to live this life is by first submitting your life completely, 100% to Jesus. No divided allegiances, no hedging your bets, submitting your life completely and wholly to Jesus and being filled by his spirit. Listen, that has to happen first. And so if you're watching this and you've never done that, let me just encourage you, do, do that right now. Just talk to God right now, right where you are in your bedroom or your living room, wherever you're sitting. Just say to God, listen, God, I, I, I know that I'm a sinner and I, I know that I cannot live this life that you've called me to. I can't be set apart. I can't do all of these things. I can't live this in my own strength. I need you in my life. Like, Father, I, I need your spirit living and breathing inside of me in order for me to do this. And so, God, would you, would you, maybe for the first time, would you actually forgive me of my sin? I want to repent from my sin. I want to turn away from all of that junk in my life, and I want to turn and place my hope fully in Jesus. And I want to follow you now and for the rest of my life. Now, if you, if you just prayed that prayer or you want to pray a prayer like that, let us know. Would you, would you reach out? Just drop, drop us a comment. You can email us at info at nlcca.org. We're not gonna pester you. We just wanna celebrate with you. We wanna walk this path with you, send you some material to help you out. And then in closing, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're tuned in, here's, here's the question for you as we finish. Christian, what area of your life isn't fully surrendered to God in this moment? It's that one area. And if I were a betting man, I would bet that you have that one area, and you know it right now. It's already come to your mind. What's that one area of your life that is not fully submitted to God? Is it in the area of holiness, perhaps? Is it in the area of, of, of awe, reverence, a healthy fear for, for God? Maybe you fear man instead of God. Is it a, a lack of love, forgiveness, grace for brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God? I don't know what it is for you, but I'm asking you to ask God to show you where your response isn't lining up to the price that he paid to ransom you and redeem you through Jesus Christ. Friend, listen, hope demands a response. Living hope demands a response, and he has given us the living hope. How is he asking you to respond to that hope this morning? Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father, as we get ready, as we get our hearts ready to worship you once more, Father, would you, would you convict us by your word, through your spirit? Would you begin to, to shape and mold our hearts to be more like Jesus? God, don't, don't let us just continue to live our lives and coast spiritually in neutral. Father, you have so, so much more for us. 
You have so much more for us. So Father, by your spirit, would you begin to change us? Would you begin to surface, bring up those areas of our life that are not fully submitted to you right now, God? Father, would you teach us how to be holy like you are holy? Would you teach us how to love one another in the faith family? God, would you teach us how to fear you rightly? God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for ransoming us. Thank you for calling us elect exiles, chosen, loved, redeemed, forgiven. God, help us to live in light of who you say we are. For your fame, for your glory throughout the whole world, we ask all this in the name of Jesus.